Kia ora, I'm Maria, I'm Māori and Pākehā. And I'm Kate, and I am Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a biracial person. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And we want to offer our respect to the elders of these lands, past, present and those to come. And also acknowledge traditional owners from the lands where this podcast is reaching you. Today we are going to be chatting to Nick Hermanis about being biracial. Nick is a Melbourne-based musician and you actually know him because he is one part of the incredible duo, the Green Twins, and they made this music which you are listening to right now. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Want to take it slow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. <laughs> Pleasure, thank you for having me. If we ever need backing vocalists, you two are the first call, no doubt. So we always start by asking, what's your mix? Um, I'm South African Australian. So my dad's a black South African from Cape Town and my mum's an Anglo-Australian of Irish and Scottish descent. How did your dad get to Australia? He came by boat, um, so he's a boat person, loud and proud. But he came as soon as the white Australia policy was lifted um, for people migrating in, which I think was 1973, I think. And so apartheid in South Africa was still in full swing? Heavy duty, yeah. So it was at the time he was married um, to not my mum and they had two kids and they all migrated here. How do you think he felt coming to Australia? I think initially, like, definitely excitement, as probably most migrants do, especially when they're in, you know, areas that they need to flee. But um, when he was here, I think he was he, he was at a migrant hostel and I think he met a few other South Africans that he really got on well with and other migrants too. So he felt pretty accepted and he's always had really good English too. So that would have been an absolute leg up. But we were talking about how he was treated initially at work because he was um, quite well educated in South Africa. I don't know how that translated to Australia, but within the first maybe four or five years, he um, he's a social worker. So he got to quite a senior role. And I think that was quite an issue for, um, you know, white people at his work, having a black man in quite a senior role. So I think he has mixed feelings about this start, but he definitely feels like it's home now. So my mum is a doctor and it's really interesting because she works in country Victoria <laughs> and she uh, she loves like trapping people in the like where are you from question because like she has such an ethnic name, she looks quite ethnic, she's in very white places. Um, so she'll do funny things like I, I distinctly remember when I was a kid, like one of her friends was English and like ha- just hadn't got her Australian passport. So 
if her friend was like making some kind of vaguely racist remark, my mum would be like, well, you know, only one of us in this conversation are in fact Australian. And I call it out. Or she'll do things like in her in her GP clinic, like she'll have a photo of her white husband or like me playing footy as like markers that she is not not what they would consider to be an overseas trained doctor. Yeah. Because I think there are particular stereotypes around that as well. That's good that your mum makes a point. My dad's <laughs> definitely the same. Like if someone – you can just see his ears prick up almost like a dog if someone says like, oh, um, where are you from? Or like we've been at a takeaway um, noodle shop um, and he's like – we were just standing out the front literally waiting for some food and this woman just comes up to him. I think this was in um, like the Yarra Valley where I grew up in Lilydale and a woman just came up to him and said, oh, like are my noodles nearly ready? And he like obviously was confused – and then he just clicked that she thought he was the chef. But, and, like, it just is bizarre. Like, what a bizarre assumption to make. Han, I don't uh, – I'm not in the kitchen right now. No. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what he's like, madam, I'll check for you. But I don't <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. So how did your parents meet and how did they end up in Lilydale? So they met both working as social workers – um, in the public service at what was, I think it was DHS then, which is Department of Human Services. And I think my mum was actually um, doing placement from uni and my dad was already in quite a senior role. There's a bit of an age gap, I think 12 or 13 years. And they each had, like, I think they both acknowledged that it was definitely like some stares. A lot of people would stare and look confused, so which was always nice. But also within the working um, team, it just sounded like it was half to do with the age difference, um, almost like an like an assumed like abuse of power kind of thing, or to do or like because they're mixed race, and it just sounded pretty toxic and pretty hard. And they were both social workers for a long time, and I just feel a bit like after that, I felt a bit sad. I was like, oh sounds rough yeah you probably had to deal with this a lot <laughs> yeah yeah and it's such a different time that you know i wasn't around in obviously and like i know how weird it can be you know from the 90s to now but i think pre that especially when australia was a different place then would have been weird do they still get any of that kind of stuff i haven't heard i don't think together maybe and i don't think my mum's Ever like I think sometimes mum would get it if it was just my mum and me in public, for example. Like maybe people would question whether I was her son, but I don't. I don't think recently. I think they feel pretty at home with it and proud. So tell us about Lilydale in the nineties. Lilydale in the nineties. It's definitely not like Lilydale now. It's like much more multicultural. And when I say much, like did not have much to build from. So, yeah, in, in the 90s, people of colour were few and far between. Like my school was massive, the massive pu- public school, Lerda High. It was like I think 15 or 1,800 people. And I had a few like experiences that stick out. We took Indonesian class for um, language 
And one time our teacher, who was white but spoke, spoke fluent Indonesian, um, she singled me out when talking about I, – I don't think she thought I was Indonesian, but she was talking about multilingual kind of families. And she's like, like Nick, like, like where are you from, Nick? But she honestly was like, no, like where are you from though? Until it got to the point – and I was just – I wasn't even making a point of it at this. I was just like, no, I'm literally from like a K up the road. <laughs> but then I walked here. Yeah. But then it, I was like, oh, I, now I got what you're asking. No, I'm, I'm not Indonesian or – because I was confused. I didn't know if she was asking me if, was, if I was Indonesian or what, what the point was. Yeah. I think that those kind of experiences where you feel – you just feel different. Like I didn't feel – like she was viewing me as something else, like something, but just something else. Did you have any mixed race friends or, you know, biracial friends growing up to help you navigate your incredibly white high school? Um, not really. I had one friend in primary school. I had a few more friends, actually. There was another um, South African kid, which was nice. But I think we were friends because my our dads were friends. So it was that kind of friend by association but it definitely felt like a nice I don't know if we would have been incredibly close if not for that common yeah you were yeah it was matchmaking by parents (laughs) um I had a friend who was half Filipino half Anglo-Australian I think that's about it so did you consider yourself white um no I, I never felt white I always felt different and yeah, I don't think I was very white passing, but I probably didn't look like my how I identify as to other people. What do other people think? Like, do people presume you're weird mixes? Yeah, definitely. I get everything. Like, I've had Greek. Um, like, you know, you must be Greek. Like, I'm telling you, you must be. No. Um, <laughs> I've had the like, you know, the Australian kind of generic. Oh, you're Asian doesn't really matter where from, but you must be Asian of something, which was, that was in high school. That was the common one. Like, and kids like were just systemically racist, you know, from their parents. So people would call me like, it took me a while to work out that it was an insult calling me Asian. And they'd call me like Asia and it was just bizarre. Like just I, like as a nickname. Yeah. Like just as a, and you know, not a, you know, when it's not like a really aggressive thing, mm. But you're just like, you feel different. You're like, is that an honest mistake or you don't understand? Asia. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> just a casual yeah. microaggression. Yeah, it's, it was weird. Oh, my gosh. So what do you, like, do you play any games with people when they ask you where you're from or ask you to get their noodles? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been asking for noodles yet. I'm waiting, <laughs> waiting for the day. Um, yeah, I think I just make them... Like I'll go through the rounds as I'm sure everyone does. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Lilydale. No, no, like where, like did you grow up there? I was like, yeah, I grew up there. Where are your parents from? Oh, um, my mom's from Box Hill and my dad's from Cape Town. Oh, this is the, I got this really recently. Oh, I thought you'd be from somewhere more exotic. And like that, from that point I was like, do I even bother? Like where, where is exotic enough for you? And the same thing, like it's not like they don't mean anything extremely offensive, but it's, but like it's 2021 offensive. now. It's, come on. 
Exotic. I love that. The hierarchy of exotic locations. <laughs> Cape Town doesn't rate in my top ten. <laughs> what are the top ten? Enlighten me. <laughs> yes. So do then, do people push past that and ask, like, is your dad black? Well, not usually. Like, I usually make a point of saying my dad's a black South African because obviously I feel like a lot of the a lot of people in Australia have different views on what is African and they think it's just maybe black and white people there, which is not true. Like, there's you – know, I guess because what I look like is not what people imagine a stereotypical African Australian to look like. So I feel def- that I have to defend myself to what I identify as to what they think I look like. So when you're identifying yourself, what term do you use to describe yourself? Probably up until I spoke to you, Kate, about being on this podcast, um, I'd always used mixed race. because I don't think I'd have heard biracial, but I like biracial. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, mixed race has been the, the common one. Well, because then if, uh, I feel like mixed race invites more questions. Totally, yep. yeah, yeah. And it's a bit, it sounds more uncertain. You're a bit kind of like I'm um, like a mix, I guess. Yeah, I guess I'm a to mix. please you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then I guess they could, people can cut that a whole bunch of different ways in their brain. But if you say biracial, it's like pretty clear that like one of my parents is in one world and one of my parents is from another world. Totally. So Nick is being beautiful and not saying the full context behind this, which is that. I actually accosted him at a friend's Christmas party. (laughs) So Nick and I were literally picking up salad and I was like, hey, Nick, how's it going? So nice to see you at our like yearly catch up at Christmas. Are you biracial? (laughs) (laughs) And he was very sweet. I mean, as direct as it was, though, it was still such a nice question. I could hear the, the undertones as opposed to, hey. What are you, mate? (laughs) (laughs) And I think at the time you actually said that you were coloured, which I've never heard before, which is so interesting to me. Yeah. um, I think that's definitely the South Africanism. And apartheid is totally like literally on your identity card you'd have if you're white, if you're black or if you're coloured. And there's just so many... Like South Africa is such a melting pot because of colonization. Like you've got Dutch people, you've got Spanish people, Indonesian people. So it's just a whole mix. So my dad, um, he he definitely identifies as a black South African because during apartheid, where when he grew up, he just obviously he wants to be loud and proud that he's indigenous to Cape Town. But some days though, he'll use the term coloured, or some days he'll use the term black. So I think from that. I drew that, yeah, I'm coloured too. So it was coloured supposed to denote that you were in fact mixed in some way? I think so. I think, and they used it for, uh, there were a lot of Indian people there as well. So I think um, that, you know, would see themselves, or they, the society would see them as not quite as um, disgusting as <laughs> an Indigenous African person. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's like a definitely a hierarchy, wasn't there, in apartheid? Yeah, yeah. it's like I don't like know a heap about it other from stories from my dad, but yeah. So you and your dad yarn about it? Yeah, definitely. I think he's very um, passionate and like was just involved in a lot of like really messed up things, like you know having to go to bus stations through the back entrance, and you know black only buses, white only buses. Yeah, just treated like absolute second-class citizens, obviously, for his whole life. 
So that kind of passion that he speaks about that has definitely influenced me and my younger brother in particular. Have you guys had like chats about race and identity? Yeah, definitely. He's really, um, really in touch with that side of himself. So it's nice talking to him about it. Um, I th- he's definitely would identify as African Australian as well. Um, but he has some funny stories too about like because when you he's a bit paler, so I I don't, I don't think he would be white passing still, but um, yeah, like people in high, in at our high school thought he was Vietnamese like specifically, so they gave him a specific um, country, which was nice, I guess, of them. Not just Asian. <laughs> no, not just Asians in general. <laughs> yeah, so he's had a few identity crisis issues as well, I think, but. I, I've, he's younger than me, but he's always felt like the older brother. He's a social worker too, so he's taken the same leg as the family. What kind of chats do you and your brother have about identity? Well, we talk about it probably more specific to our um, experiences and because we both love basketball and I studied jazz. So um, jazz is like obviously African-American um, basketball most of the players are African-American from the US, so they were our heroes, I guess, growing up. And my dad listened to a lot of black artists from the US too because they were strong political movement um, leaders in, especially like they were like people fr- from that South African people could look up to as black people doing well. So we felt like they were who we looked up to, yet we don't quite look how we feel we identify as. So that's mostly the the chats consist of that, like saying we feel like, you know, African-Australian when we're playing basketball or when we're like watching basketball or listening to music, but then maybe people not accepting or not seeing us like that because of how we look. I think it's so awesome though that you had those, yeah, you had those people to look up to though growing up. Yeah, I think it's so important. I think especially like, you know, when you – not when you see yourself, but when you see people that are not white people. I think the older I get and the more I meet, you know, people that have that kind of identity crisis where they don't know they, which side they fit into. And like, especially when you've grown up in an area where you're not immersed in one side of your culture. I think the more perspective I get with other people's experience gives me that kind of, um, strength in my identity as you know associating with both sides and I think it's just like almost like a new like yeah I'm definitely Australian I've grown up here I've lived here my whole life and I definitely don't look like what people assume Australians look like but I like that and I so I think I, while I love like the South African part of me I just haven't had enough experience there but definitely in terms of what I do with just music um, it's been a huge influence in what way has it been an influence? Um, well, I was really lucky. Like when I was young, um, I'm a guitarist, and when I was really young and not very good, I was lucky enough to play with these um, older guys that are actually from Footscray. Um, so there, it was a kind of African music-based band. There was only there was a guy from Tanzania, and then the guy who ran it, Ray Prayer. He's a percussion player. He's from Sri Lanka, and um, yeah, like my knowledge of hearing that music a lot just helped me a lot to play in that kind of thing. And I really liked that. That's when I felt like, oh, yeah, like I am South African. And they all referred to me as this is Nick from South Africa. 
which was nice. Seen, being seen. Yeah. And it just felt like, yes. So I remember the first time I came to Footscray, I remember I got off the bus and I, and like Footscray is quite a multicultural place. And I, and I had never been in a place that was this multicultural. And oh, I, we used to love coming to foot, dad would take us to African restaurants. It was, we just looked forward to it so much. Like it's, I was just like, holy shit, I'm not the brownest person here. <laughs> and then I didn't come back for a couple of years because I was living my best white life in Brunswick. <laughs> but, um, when I came back over um, and moved to the west side, I was like, holy shit, yeah, this is yeah, this is the place to be. Like, yep. yeah, there's it's just it's so such a rich cultural area. Is it is it still an influence in your music now? Yeah, I think. Definitely um, rhythmically, like a lot of the um, traditional African rhythms, like even when I first started playing them, it's like an absolute head fuck. Like the rhythms, they're just so deep and rich, like thousands of years old. So to hear them, it's just like you almost trip over. Like I don't even know where to stop my foot. But that, that's what was great with playing with these guys who had so much experience in that and done a lot of touring in like African countries and just rich in rhythm. So I think that kind of has stuck with my playing, whether into other styles as well. Like weirdly, Persian music is also like something that present. I just think a huge part of being Iranian is dancing. Um, not like traditional dancing, obviously. <laughs> I have only been to Iran once and I went in my 20s and I went for three months I was just staying with aunties and my grandma and stuff like that. And obviously a government that forces everyone to like cover up on the outside, but everybody's living their best lives inside their houses. So like house parties is a thing. Oh. And so a Persian house party is how I think every house party should be, which is uh, that there is amazing food, an abundance of food, and the chairs are on the outside of the room. Like uh, around near the, the walls. Dancing has to happen. And so dancing is in the middle and like food is at one end. And so like it's not like sit around our table and let's all eat together and have a conversation. They'll just, they're just like we're leading with the dancing and the food will be a side thing. And if you need a break, you can have some food and you sit on the side. And, but you've got to watch everyone else who's dancing. And I love it. And I, and I feel like so connected to that part as well, even when I – I'm dancing anywhere. I'm like, oh, this is what I'm doing actually is inspired by the dancing that my aunties do. Yeah, and I've been to a house party at your house where your house has been set up like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was a cultural thing, Maria. How dare you not recognise that? So were you a multilingual family? No, my dad speaks Afrikaans and then uh, when he was younger, he spoke Corsa as well. Um, but no, just English and then he speaks to his friends and we can hear Afrikaans in the other room, which is nice. What is the second language that you said? I don't actually know anything about it. Corsa, um, that's the one of the indigenous languages um, in that region of Africa. Because Afrikaans is like a Dutch Yeah, I vibe, think I actually... Um, thought I was talking to my dad about this. I thought that um, you know, black South Africans kind of um, 
because it was they spoke that language that became the standardized language for South Africa, and it I thought it was kind of a forced thing, but I thought it was mostly Dutch, a mix of Dutch and African languages. But apparently, it's a whole melting pot of yeah, Africa of Dutch. Um, I think there's words from of Indonesian, and then yeah, obviously heavy, heavily based on African languages. Shout out to your teacher. She was saying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was on something. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have you asked your dad about whether he thought about talking to you and your brother in Afrikaans? Um yeah, I think he probably I don't know how that's what I don't know how strongly he felt connected to that language. But yeah, my mum doesn't speak it. So there was never that kind of emphasis on um yeah. Speaking that language. Have you made any attempts in in later in life to to learn any of the languages that your family speak? No, I haven't. I like. I think my the first thing I really want to do is just. I've been there only once, so me and my younger brother really want to go, like go back there and just as adults because we went there as um, I was like sixteen. So yeah, I think that's the first, and maybe hopefully when I get back, I'll have that invigorated energy to yeah, learn learn the language or just learn more about the culture. When we went with my family, we were lucky enough to stay with a lot of my dad's friends. So it felt more like a connection or an instant connection like because they treat you like family. Like that, it doesn't matter that we grew up in Australia or that our mum's white. Like we're family to them. So that felt very welcoming and you felt like enriched a little bit going there as an adult and thinking I'm just going to get there and feel like, yes, I'm home. Yeah. Probably a little bit more sceptical about it. I, I hope that happens. But So is there like specific South African cuisine? Yeah. Um, my dad's a great cook and the um, style of cooking is called Cape Malay. I don't know a lot about the history, but I know that Malaysian like and Indonesian spices made their way into Cape Town at some point along with slaves as well, I think, from those countries. Yay. Yeah. So Cape Malay is a big, I guess, it's like curries and then it's very meat-heavy, which doesn't help me too much. I'm, I try and be vegetarian. It doesn't always work, but give it a good crack. So my dad always made like mince meat curry and dal's another big one. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of just rice and curry. That's the... The go-to. Do you cook Cape Malay food? Yeah, that was the first thing I got my dad to show me how to cook when I moved out of home for the first time. He, like, ground me up, like, his garam masala. Um, he, he told me what, like, from what Indian stores to get what. And, like, it's it's really cool. It's like a – I feel like the flavours are really – like, everyone can kind of get into it and relate to it a little bit. Like, oh, this kind of tastes a little bit like that. Like, this heaps of turmeric, heaps of – yeah, garam masala, like not not really heavy chili or anything. It's more like, you know, meat and potatoes, like your rice, your curries. Do you have a recommendation of a Cape Malay restaurant in Melbourne that we could go to or that our listeners could go to? Ooh. Or you just go to I your dad's place? Yeah, <laughs> my dad's place. Do you want the address? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, please. Yeah, we are going to show up to a lot of people's houses. Yeah, both my parents would literally welcome anyone. <laughs> Especially for dinner, <laughs> and that's like such a Cape Tonian thing as well. From my dad's side, like if you go somewhere, 
like you you're eating even if you've already eaten it has to be food in Iran, we have like there are a lot of traditions around food, and even like someone coming to your house for a cup of tea, like people popping in all the time. Um, but <laughs> first of all, um, but second of all, like there are so many rituals around just tea drinking. For instance, some patriarchal ones, like for example, me as the youngest female in if I, in the household if that's the case at that moment I'm the one that like serves everyone but my most hated thing that my aunties make me do is that <sighs> <laughs> so I have to serve everyone tea everyone gets a plate so that they can do we, people just come around for a cuppa and then everyone gets a plate to eat like the delicious sweets all the fruit like knives for the fruit blah 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 then because people stay for hours at one point, my auntie will point to me and be like, change the plates. So then, oh. I, so then I go around and collect everybody's plates and swap them with fresh ones just so that that person then can do their next helping, even though they're eating the same food again. Oh my God, wow. That's so annoying. That's restaurant service right there. I know. That's like, you know, when you're at a fancy restaurant, when they come and take the entree plates, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're like, oh, I wasn't done with that. Yeah. In fact, yeah. <laughs> I actually needed that for the whole the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Wow! So you do that with a big smile on your face, obviously. Kate. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think, like, yeah, hospitality um, and food go hand in hand in Maori culture. So it's it's called um, manaki tanga, um, which basically loosely translates to hospitality, and it's just about making people feel welcome in your home and being generous with your time and food and energy. Um, and it's like such a central tenant of, you know, being Māori and, and being part of the community. And so like I'd go around to my cousin's house and like they would just ply me with food yeah. <laughs> and love. <laughs> you know. That's it. They, they also go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> the food's made with love. So you have to eat it. Exactly. <laughs> you got to eat it out. <laughs> when you're in South Africa, do people clock you as South African? It dep- again, like with our friends, obviously they know, so there's no – like they're not looking at you and thinking, are you, mm. are you from here? But definitely when they hear me speak, they don't think I'm from <laughs> South Africa. <laughs> I just – I guess I'm asking because of this like quote-unquote coloured history and mixed-race history, I'm wondering like whether – I've never been to South Africa, whether there are people who look like you. Yeah, I think definitely more so like – they wouldn't, people wouldn't look at me and think he's not South African. Mm. So, like, there are a lot of mixed-race people in Cape Town especially. Does your dad go back often? No. So he – the first time he went back since he migrated, he was with us in when I was 16. So that was, like, 2004 or five. And has he, has he been back since then or no? He's been back once since then. I think it – yeah, it just – it was a lot of trauma to go back to. So it was good that he did go back and he feels a lot better now. But, yeah, there's a lot of trauma. So I'm curious about how movements like the Black Lives Matter movement and, and you know, that some of that stuff has impacted how you see yourself. I think that's been, like, a big cause recently of, like, checking myself and, like, imposter syndrome as well, like, like feeling, obviously, my dad like he's completely like outraged and emotional when watching anything like that because it's so reminiscent of apartheid so 
I think like that's I feel the, you know through him and I, and through like just compassion as you should as a human being feel so angry and outraged by seeing it but I also feel like yeah definitely when I identify more with my African side in moments like especially like when like I was saying like looking up to like musicians or um, basketball players there's so many mixed race basketball like half black half white basketball players but because they're associated with basketball and a lot of them actually have like not like tight African hair there's no question like they might could be as pale you know as anyone but there's no question that they're black and that's because of how what that means to be black there like they're not white so they are black so that makes me feel like well I can identify more as black as well um I feel you there Nick it's really hard to see yourself when you know one of your parents is white and the other one is fully something else Mm. um so it is really hard to identify with that and I feel especially like I had trouble seeing myself as brown because I was raised by my white mum um trademark (laughs) Maria's favorite catchphrase (laughs) my mum is white (laughs) she has blue eyes what and black hair um do you feel similar, Nick? Is that something that you identify with as well? I guess something that um, comes up is obviously with my mum. I've always I've always had the feeling that sometimes she feels like she's the odd one out, which we all go out of our way to try and make her not feel that. But I think sometimes that that those kind of feelings come up when we're all talking about you know, mixed race issues and or being um, coloured in a majority Anglo country um, because she can't relate to it. And I think that's a bit of a source of, yeah, um, uncomfortability from her, which sucks. So I think that anytime that feeling comes up, we all try and balance it out. But it's, it's present by that point. So what we then talk about, yeah, I just... It's a hard, it's a, it seems like a bit of an arm wrestle sometimes. And it's like you should you should be glad that you don't have to feel like this. I know, but yeah. I think it's the opposite. I think it's like she she doesn't like that we have to and she doesn't oh. or she can't. Yeah. It's really interesting hearing you reflect on your relationship with your mum. It's it's bloody hard, to be honest. It's really hard. Your partner's white as well though, Nick. And she's from New Zealand, isn't she? She is. So that that just means that she's She's probably cool. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, Maria's seeing herself. (laughs) Bringing those links, bringing those links. Yeah, actually, um, Jess is the other half of the Green Twins. Oh, love. Yeah, um, and Jess is Nick's partner. (laughs) Just filling in all the blanks for everyone (laughs) listening. (laughs) And I have something that I would love to finish the podcast by talking about. Go on, go off. Look at her sneaky little face. I'm dying to tell this story. (laughs) Last night, I was talking to Jess about Invercargill, the place that Maria is from. Yes, unfortunately. Which is, how many people live in Invercargill? Okay, actually, it's like 50K. Like, they have Kmart. They've got two KFCs. I think they have two McDonald's too. Like, it's really coming up. (laughs) Okay, so it's like way bigger than Kilmore. Yeah, it's not small. It's like a regional centre. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
right. You, Have I been tricking you? You've been pitching it like she's living in Kilmore, which is my experience. Uh. A place of like 5,000 people. Okay, like, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> like three pubs, two bakeries. Uh, we, when we were growing up, there was no Coles. Uh, that when we got a McDonald's, it was a thing. It's a big thing. Uh, it was okay. a big Did thing. Did that split the town up? We'll see. Okay, so the first McDonald's that we got was actually on the highway. Um, so people would be like traveling to go to Macca's. Oh, from Kilmore <laughs> out to the highway. I love like that. hot yeah. date, go to Macca's. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing tonight? Highway? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go cut some laps and go to Macca's. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> exactly. All right. So Invercargill is big. Yeah. It's not that small. And I feel like maybe I've been misleading you. <laughs> it is small though. Like it's small. Like, I mean, we live in Melbourne. There's like 5 million people that live here. Yeah. You know. I wonder how many people live in Lilydale. Lilydale's bigger than Kilmore definitely. It's like yeah, maybe yeah. 30,000. Okay. So Invercargill is the biggest of all the towns represented in so this It's kind room. of like a Ballarat vibe. <laughs> Well, yeah. it's a big country town. Yeah, 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 exactly. But not Geelong level. No, <laughs> no, no, not quite. So um, I was telling Jess that Maria and I were going to interview Nick today and I was saying, oh, yeah, Maria's from New Zealand. Um, she's from the bottom of the South Island, this place called Invercargill. And then Jess revealed the funniest thing that has ever been said to me in my entire life, <laughs> which is... That she has, in fact, been to Invercargill and she went to Invercargill because she was in a hip-hop dance crew and that hip-hop dance crew was called Desire (laughs) and they went to Nationals and Nationals were in Invercargill. The National Hub. <laughs> National Hip Hop Dance Hub. Hub. Bing, bing. <laughs> and she was like, Do you reckon Maria was at Nationals? And I was like, No. <laughs> I don't I don't dance. <laughs> but I for more context, Invercargo is not like a tourist destination in New Zealand. It's just like a little A hip hop tourist destination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nick, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Jess's costume was in her hip hop dance crew? I definitely would like to. So she has gorgeous blonde hair, for anyone listening. Um, Jess. Yeah. <laughs> and their uniform was all yellow, which her mum would point out looks awful on her. I think she would say, Jess, it just doesn't suit your complexion. <laughs> Do you know whose complexion yellow does suit? <laughs> Mine. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the makeup of her dance crew, Nick? They were all motor girls. <laughs> <laughs> One time I wore a yellow dress and someone came up to me and told me that I look like Michelle Obama. <laughs> oh, wow. my God. Who came up to you? <laughs> I think I was in a 21st. <laughs> oh, wow. The yeah. same person that told Nick's dad <laughs> to get her noodle, noodle order. Yeah. <laughs> it's the wow. same night, yeah. <laughs> Are my noodles ready? I think I just saw Michelle Obama walk past <laughs> Look at her toned arms. Yeah. <laughs> and then I call for that dress my Michelle Obama dress. Oh, nice. Maria. Oh, no. Look at me harming myself. <laughs> Proud. Nick, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on our podcast. I feel like you're with us every week because mm. we listen to your songs <laughs> so often. So it's such a joy and a gift to have you in the studio talking to us, oh. not just singing and playing music in our ears. Such an honour to be a part of it. 
had so much fun. Yay. Yay. Thank you. you. And thank you, Jess. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And Desire. (laughs) Most importantly, let's thank Desire. (laughs) Being Biracial is hosted, edited, and produced by Kate Robinson and myself, Maria Birch-Moranger. Just two gals making a podcast. The music that you're listening to is by Nick and Jess, the beautiful duo, the Green Twins, and this is their incredible song, Take It Slow. You can find it on Spotify. Our podcast was developed with the support of Footscray Community Arts Centre through the generous use of their podcast dungeon here on the lands of the Kulin Nation. If you're biracial and you're keen to be interviewed by us on the podcast, please get in touch. Or if you want to sponsor our podcast, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at beingbiracialpodcast or send us an email at beingbiracialpodcast at gmail.com. And if you liked this episode, why not subscribe? Bye. Bye.